Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day, gentlemen, and the rest of you guys. You know, I mentioned this uh, a few weeks ago, in light, but in light of this Sunday's passage, I, I want to I bring it up again. When we're looking at the parables of Jesus, we, we've got to be so careful when we begin to interpret the meaning of what, what it is that Jesus is saying. Remember, by definition, a parable is simply a story told to communicate a truth. The dynamic, though, that makes interpreting these simple stories so difficult is that generally, not always, but, but most often, Jesus does not explain the meaning of his parables. Most often, Jesus is, is responding to a question or, or to a situation as simply by telling a story without ever spelling things out for us, without ever telling us plainly what the point his story is intended to communicate. Because of that, too often the parables of Jesus are, are lifted out of their context and they are used to teach things, to illustrate things that are utterly unrelated to what Jesus is addressing when he gives the parable. These simple stories can be saddled with meanings that, that Jesus never intended for them that have no relevance to the context in which Jesus told them. And so we've got to be careful not to do that. Don't use the words of Jesus. Hey, don't use scripture to address things that scripture is not teaching. Even if those things are good, okay? We've, we've got to watch that. Don't bend the words of scripture. Even to support true things, let scripture say what it says and let it be silent where it's silent. Now, I, I can't think of off the top of my head anything bad that could be taught from today's text, okay? But maybe I'm just not creative enough. I'm sure someone could pull it off. Regardless, we need to make sure that we are interpreting these parables within the context in which Jesus gave them. So let's read our text for this morning. Uh, we're, we're in Luke chapter 14. We're picking up in verse 25. So will you do this? Will you stand? I'll read God's word. I invite you to follow along as I read Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. This is what Luke writes. Now great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, this man started to build but wasn't able to finish. 
Or what king going to war against another king will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. Father, this morning we ask that you would give us ears to hear and brains to think. God, I pray that you would help us to understand your word. Lord, we, we hear these passages, we read them, and sometimes they can feel just like disconnected sayings. And help us, Lord, to see what it is you're driving at, what it is that you are speaking, not only to the hearers of your day, to, but to us as well. And then, Lord, we need you to help us more. We need you to help us receive it to be willing to accept what it is that you would say to us and apply it to our lives. God, work that in us this morning. By the power of your spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If, like me, your attention span is short, here's the short message. Most concisely, what Jesus says here is that he wants disciples, not admirers. Jesus wants disciples, not admirers. He wants those who will give him first place. He wants those who will fully relinquish their lives to him. He wants those who will fully disconnect themselves from stuff. You and I, we need to think this through. We need to take to heart what Jesus says here. We need to stop and we need to consider what Jesus requires of those who would be his disciples. That's the message. That's the message. And it fits the context. It fits the context in which Jesus says what he says here. Remember, Jesus has just left a dinner with a group of Pharisees, the religious leaders who were only interested in Jesus because of the crowds that were following him but they opposed pretty much everything that he spoke. And now Jesus leaves that dinner and he returns to the crowds, the very people that he was inviting to come and to follow him, to come, remember last week's parable, to come to his great banquet in place of the religious leaders. Jesus was inviting the crowds to come out and to see the miracles, to hear the teachings. But beyond that, he wanted more from them. He's inviting them to follow him. Not just geographically, but to become his disciples, to shape their lives around them. 
And so here Jesus leaves the dinner with the Pharisees, the ones who didn't want to follow. And now he has this enormous crowd who is literally following him from place to place. But, but how does he respond to them? How does he greet them? Well, it's a little unexpected, I think. He does not encourage them, but rather he begins to thin the crowd. And he lays out the requirements for those who would do more than follow him geographically, who would truly become his followers, who would become his disciples. Because Jesus, he is not interested in modeling his group after the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He, he isn't interested in creating his own group of hypocritical followers. Jesus wanted then, and he wants today, those who will take his teaching to heart, those who will shape their lives on it, who will put it into action. He isn't interested in those who find him inspiring or who admire him. He wants those who are willing to fully embrace what he says in the reality of how they're living their lives. And so Jesus lays out three rather demanding concepts, three requirements for disciples. First, look part way through verse 25. He turned and said to them, to this crowd that's following him, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I don't know about you, but for me, that's not exactly what I would have expected to hear from Jesus. The flesh and blood expression of God's love for all humanity, right? Now, before those of you who are borderline sociopaths get too excited, Jesus is not telling us that we are supposed to hate people, okay? Understand that that isn't what this is. It, considering all that Jesus says elsewhere about loving others, loving each other, that much should be obvious. And yet what Jesus says here, I mean, he does say it. It does mean something. We have to look all the way back to the book of Genesis to get some help with this. If you look at Genesis chapter 29, there in verse 30, in the story about Jacob and his two wives, we read this, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. So Jacob loves them both, but he loved Rachel more. That's what verse 30 says, but then if you go forward and in describing this dynamic, the very next verse phrases it this way, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated. Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah, and the Lord uses this, this phrase to describe the fact that Jacob loved Rachel so much more that it was as if he hated Leah. That's what Luke's talking about here too. That's what it, it meant when Jesus says that our love for him is to be so great, so primary that by comparison, it will seem that we hate all others, including ourselves. What Jesus is calling us to here is 
to make him primary. We are to love him above family, above self, above all else. Think for a moment what that would look like. We favor those whom we love, right? We give them the best, the most, the first. We long to be with them, to honor them, to serve them. We are happy to put their desires above our own, to do what they want to do. So if, the, if I love the Lord more than I love anyone else, that is going to translate into actual time and energy expended. It's going to be reflected in, in where I invest my focus and my resources. It's going to be reflected in my attitude. If I love the Lord, then the things relating to him won't be requirements or obligations, but rather they will be my joy. They will be the desire of my heart. It would probably be good to remind ourselves, first of all, that we have more reason to love Jesus than we have to love anyone. Hey, he took our sin. He took our sin. He died in our place, and he loves us. And he cares for us, even when we are at our worst. I think we should also remember that loving someone is a choice. Loving Loving someone is a choice. Loving Christ or anyone is something that we choose. It's not something that we just have to hope that we happen to feel. So the first requirement of Jesus for his disciples is that we would love him above all others, including above ourselves. The second requirement is just as demanding, if not more so. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You and I, we hear this phrase very differently than did those to whom Jesus spoke it. For many of us, it's just a rather flat religious cliche that, that has something to do with bearing hard things willingly. But for those who are listening to Jesus, the idea of bearing your cross not only communicated inescapable, impending, torturous death, but it called to mind not just images in their mind, understand the significance of this, but horrifically graphic memories. They didn't just know what crucifixion was. They themselves had seen it. For some, it was the memory of walking past those who were dying, their crosses erected right there alongside the road so that all would have to see. For others, for others, it was far worse. It was the horrific memory of standing by, watching helplessly as a friend, a relative, a husband, a son, or a father was nailed in place and then having to watch them hang there 
hoping and praying for death to come quickly. It seldom did. So when Jesus says to his disciples that they must bear their cross, that they must come after him, understand, he was communicating very clearly that to be his disciple requires the end of living your life for yourself. You know, if you, if you are crucified, your agenda, your calendar, your plans, your everything ended. It ended there. And so Jesus is saying that his disciples, they're no longer to live for themselves. They, they are instead were to follow him, to live for him, to live under his command and for his purposes. And this is, this is what we communicate. It's what we picture when you get baptized, right? We take you and we, we bury you under the water in order to, to picture your death. Not death in general, your death. I don't know if you realize this or not. Maybe you don't hang out with dead people, but dead people don't do much. They're fairly boring. They make very few demands of you. They, they don't have hobbies or plans. They're pretty much done. So are we. If we're to follow Christ, we're to no longer live for self. Now, when we baptize you, we put you under the water, and eventually, if we like you, we raise you back up out of the water in order not only to picture your death, the end of self, but this new life that you are to live, this new spirit-filled life, this life in Christ. And that is how we're to live. That is how we are to live going forward. We are to come after him. We are to live in his spirit and by his power and according to his word. We are to pursue his agenda. We're to seek after his glory. We are to live no longer representing ourselves, but now we live every day, every moment as his ambassadors. I want you to understand something about this. God created you as you on purpose. And so no longer living for self, no longer living in rebellion uh, against the one who made you, living rather according to the plan of the one who designed you as you, in the end, when you submit to Christ, you don't become less you. You become more you. You become more who God made you to be. He, you become more who God designed you to be than you ever could be if you were living in rebellion against God. You become the individual that God created and desires you to be. When you reject the mold that this world is seeking to press you into, and instead you embrace the plan of the one who created you. Think about it. 
that's what these next two parables are are telling us to do. Uh, verse 28 begins these, uh, these two uh, little stories, these two parables that tell us to stop and to think. Uh, Jesus says, for which of you well, wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he's begun and cannot finish it, others will ridicule. Or what king going to war against another king does not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20. If not, well, the other is still far off. He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Jesus is saying, stop. Think about what I'm asking you to do. Take a moment to consider not only the cost of being a disciple, it's like building a tower, it's a costly undertaking. It will cost you all that you have. But also consider the cost of not becoming a disciple. Just, just like when you go to war, you need to stop and you need to think about the cost, about the outcome. And you might wanna consider surrendering. Don't just think about whether or not you want to live for Christ or to live for self. Certainly, your, your, your flesh is, is voting for living for self every day, every time. Don't just think about if it sounds like fun or not. Count the cost. What will the end result of your choice be? What will the impact of your life be? What will your legacy be? Think of C.T. Studd. Do you know who C.T. Studd was? Born in 1860, right? So a long time ago. He came to Christ when he was 18, and by 25, he was on a boat to China to be a missionary. That was an amazing thing because C.T. Studd was walking away from a promising career playing cricket. Okay, I don't know, we don't do that here in the States, but that's kind of a British thing. I think pro baseball, fame, fortune, all of that. He walked away from it. Not only that, he gave up an inheritance. His family was wealthy. And he, when he inherited that wealth, distributed it all to worthwhile missions, not wanting it to pull him away from the work that God had called him to. C.T. Studd was a hard, charging, never-say-quit kind of guy. And he, he was a source of all sorts of bold and brash, inspirational quotes, quotes that were backed up by a man who boldly lived out the things that he said. One example, when the doctors told him after he had been a missionary in China and in India, and now he is, he is planning to go to Africa, the doctors told him, hey, your, your health is far too fragile, you, you can't do this. He simply responded, forward ever, backward never, and proceeded to spend the next 21 years of his life ministering in the Sudan. His most famous quote comes from some of the poetry he wrote. It's a little cheesy, but I love what he says. He says, some wish to live within the sound of a church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Which was appropriate for a man who spent his life as a missionary in China and then India and then Africa. 
C.T. Studd lived his life as an active rebuke against easygoing churchianity. He lived out what it means to follow Christ without holding back. C.T. Studd understood that his life had a purpose. It wasn't cricket. It wasn't living a life of luxury. He said this, only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. <sighs> Friends, that's truth. That's truth. We get one go around here on this ball. And when this life is passed, only what we have done in service of the king will matter. C.T. Studd counted the cost, and he made the most of his one life for eternity. Count the cost, friends. Count the cost, and then put all your chips on the table. Put all your chips on the table. Put everything you've got into play and invest it all in God's kingdom. The third requirement that Jesus makes of his disciples is, is one that is intended to set us free, to set us free from the thing that most ensnares us. Look at verse 33. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce his possessions cannot be my disciple. And just like that, that first statement that Jesus made about hating everyone, this statement leaves us wondering just how literally did Jesus mean this? Are we to give up all of our possessions and you know, take a vow of poverty and become dependent upon others for our daily needs? Is that what he is intending? I don't think so because scripture is full of other commands that we are to provide for our families. We're to give to others. So how do we provide and give if we ourselves don't have anything? I think the, the answer is found in the concept of stewardship. Most basically, stewardship is this. It's, it's understanding that all that I am and all that I have it belongs to God. I don't own anything. In fact, God owns me, and so logically, he owns all that I have. I am merely a steward. I have been assigned by God the duty of caring for the resources, the stuff, the abilities, the opportunities that he has given me. It's all his. I'm merely here to manage and to distribute it on his behalf. God made us. He created us. And so... That which he created belongs to him. Think about that. If you make something, you would assume that, that you are its owner. You created it out of your stuff, so it belongs to you. And then Psalm 24 says, the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. Why is that? He made it. He made it out of his stuff. All that we are. And all that we have belongs to him. And not only did he make us, 
But when we rebelled against him, he bought us back. He has also redeemed us out of our sin, buying us back from our rebellion. Titus 2.14 says, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. We are twice bought. We belong to God. That's got to be played out in a practical reality. It can't just be semantics. It means that I truly am his. And I truly am not the owner of the stuff within my care. I am just the manager. And so I need to, I need to check with the owner to see what he wants me to do, what he wants me to keep, what he wants me to sell, what he wants me to improve, what he wants me to use up, because it's, it's his. It's not mine. And I need to do with it what he wants. And if I will do that, if I will do that, it will set me free from slavery to stuff. That is a huge issue for us, isn't it? This has got to be more than semantics. It, it's got to be more than, yeah, I know I'm not the owner. It all belongs to God. And yet, if I say those words and there's no reality behind that, if I still find my identity in what I own and what I possess, if I am still living for the acquisition of stuff, it owns me because I think I own it. We need freedom. We need freedom of this. We need to find our value in Christ. We need to pour out our love, not for stuff, but for Christ and for people. Finally, in verse 34, we read, now, salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let everyone who has ears to hear, Jesus says, listen. So maybe you're listening, you're hearing this, and you're thinking, this sounds a bit too radical. I mean, let, let's, let, let's just bring it back a few notches. Maybe you're thinking that you, you'd rather not get quite so crazy. I think that's why Jesus ends the way that he does. He says, salt that doesn't taste salty, it's worthless. And Christians who aren't following Christ well, if you got ears to hear, you should listen. If you got a brain between those ears, you should take some time. You should think it through. When we come to Christ, when we come to Christ, we are to abandon our past. What was before is now gone. 
We're to reset our priorities. We're to change how it is that we live. We no longer live for self, but now we are to live as disciples, as ambassadors of the King. We're to live for Christ. Jesus wants disciples, not admirers. And a disciple gives Jesus first place in their heart. A disciple relinquishes their life, no longer expending it for self, but now they live for their king. And a disciple, a disciple disconnects themselves from stuff, from the stuff of this world. We need to stop. We need to consider the cost and what Jesus demands of those who would be his disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even for a challenging passage like this that, that calls us to account, that challenges us, Lord, to die to self, to give ourselves more fully to you, to your service, to the building of your kingdom. God, we don't want to just be admirers. We don't want to just follow you in some sort of outward performance. But we want to be those who are yours, whose lives are being shaped by you, transformed by you, empowered by you. Your word promises us in Philippians that, that if we ask, you will not only give us the ability, you'll even give us the desire. And so, Lord, this morning I ask that you would give us the desire to be your disciples, the desire to die to self, the desire to love you more, the desire to disconnect from the stuff of this world. Lord, that you would give us not only the desire, but the power to do it. That you'd draw us to yourself. That you'd shape us. You'd fill us with your spirit. You would work through us. Accomplish what you desire, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name.